Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hi, everybody. Here at the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite a guest from the industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. Pete, I think tonight's guest has been a long time coming, wouldn't you say? This is unreal. Um, we're going to have a very special guest. That's right, Pete. You are going to be talking with Andy Nelson. I'm going to be talking, I think the way you say that is, I'm talking to the Andy's Nelson. <laughs> is it the Andy's Nelson? I think it's the Andy's Nelson. <laughs> That's right. It's not just me. No, no. There are actually two of us here, and it's not a clone. It's going to probably get very confusing here in a little bit. Just so you know, Pete, according to IMDb, there are, you know, I was counting again. I, I think it's closer to like 20 or so Andy Nelsons working in the film industry. I have the status of being number eight on the list. I think it's kind of according to when you signed on and put yourself in there, except for people like who we're talking to. This is, of course, Andy Nelson, number one, the re-recording mixer, Andy Nelson. That is correct. I think we should start a series of all the Andy Nelsons. <laughs> that should be in a whole, order. A whole podcast Our next in and of itself. <laughs> this week in Andy Nelson's. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so Andy Nelson, he grew up in London and uh, pursuing his love of film. He started working as a projectionist at the local cinema at the age of 16. 
already putting music to his 8mm films at home, which was a sure sign of things to come. He then started an apprenticeship in a local documentary film company, and he was eventually accepted into the BBC Film Department. By the late 70s, was in the mixing seat. The next stop was an independent studio in Soho, London, where Andy handled many music projects, his other great passion, and was introduced to the world of features when working with the late Ken Russell. And then in 1983, he moved to Shepparton Studios, working again with Ken, Nick Roeg, and Stanley Kubrick, to name a few. In 1987, he was offered the position of Director of Sound at Filmhouse in Toronto, and that year won a Genie Award for Dead Ringers and garnered his first Oscar nomination for Gorillas in the Mist. It wasn't long before he was lucky enough to be offered a position with Todd A.O. Studios. Working in Stage A, the legendary sound room in Hollywood, allowed him the opportunity to mix for Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, Adrian Lyne, Warren Beatty, Alan Parker, and many, many more. In 1999, Andy moved across town to Fox Studios, where he's worked as a sound mixer for 20 years and also serves as Senior Vice President Sound Operations. He has 21 Oscar nominations and two wins for Les Mis and Saving Private Ryan, 15 BAFTA nominations and five wins, and 21 Cinema Audio Society nominations with three wins, La La Land, Les Mis, and Saving Private Ryan. In 2014, he also received a Career Achievement Award from the CAS for all of the amazing work he's done throughout his career. Needless to say, if you've seen any of the films Andy has mixed, you have heard awesome sound. Welcome to the show, Andy Nelson. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. This is uh, positively mind-blowing, and I feel like we we have to say why. Now, first of all, in in the uh, the, the context of this show, we've been trying to get you uh, in this particular seat for, I think, a couple of years at this point, it feels like. Uh, and so it's a long time coming there, but you have to know, Andy, we started cheering for you together in college in 1995, uh, oh, I know, right? We have been talking about you behind your back for 25 years <laughs> and Andy before that. I don't know what you do with that kind of information, but I feel like you need to know it. It's uh, it's daunting, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's, it's just very funny because you have been the, uh, the uh, endless uh, supply of jokes for me when I'm watching the Oscars with, with friends or family or whoever it is. And I, I remember very distinctly the very first time watching the Oscars in high school when uh, you were nominated for Gorillas in the Mist. And and I was like, that's Andy Nelson, what, what? And I called my friend to tell him, and his mom answered, and she's like, oh, well, congratulations, Mr. Nelson. Oh, my. It's like ever since then, it's just been this endless supply of jokes. So That's so funny. Wow, well, I was a deer in the headlights of Gorillas in the Mist, as you can imagine. I I was... Uh, I can tell you a very quick story about that, if you Absolutely. like. Absolutely, I was I, I was uh, I was mixing actually in Toronto. I'd moved from London to Toronto to a, um, a studio there, and I'd finished the first film I'd done there, which was Dead Ringers for David Cronenberg. Great movie, and it got released, and it picked up a Genie nomination, which is the Canadian, you know, Academy equivalent for for their for their film awards. And I was very excited by this, of course, and. A couple of days later, the phone rang, and it was Stuart Baird, who was a picture editor in England, who had cut Grillers in the Mist. And he was, he, I picked up the phone, and he said, Andy, congratulations. And as he's saying it, I'm thinking, how does he know about the Genie Awards? Because, <laughs> I, I, you know, it was new to me, because I'd never heard of them when I was in England. And he said, yes, it's, it's, and, and it's myself, and it's Maurice Jarre. And, and suddenly I realized he was talking about Grillers in the Mist. And I had no concept of... Um, you know, 
an Academy Award nomination in those days. No concept whatsoever. So I was flying high because that was two in a week, one for the Canadian <laughs> and one for the, for the American. And so that was, uh, and then going down to the show itself, I was living in Toronto and my wife and I flew down um, in March, it was then, I think, and it was snowy in, in Canada and a beautiful blue sky here in Los Angeles. And uh, we, we were just like kids. We didn't know, you know, we were having that. We went, we checked into the Sunset Marquee. The studio put us up at the Sunset Marquee. We went out. We only had time to quickly change and go out and grab, grab a little bit of lunch. We went and sat by the pool. And at the next table on one side of me was Bruce Springsteen. And on the other side was Gene Hackman. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I said to my wife, well, I guess we've arrived. <laughs> And and what a ride it's been for you. I mean, it's been uh, you've been keeping yourself quite busy over there uh, ever since you did arrive, and uh, and certainly uh, making a lot of people happy and a lot of ears happy. You know, I didn't I didn't necessarily have sound as a as a, as a skill that I was thought I was going to make a career of when I started back in, in, in. I left school when I was sixteen and went to work in the cinema as a projectionist. And uh, the first film I learned to thread was Midnight Cowboy. 1969. Wow. And the rival, the, the rival theater down the street was showing Easy Rider. So it was, it was a great year. That was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, uh, there were some great movies that year. Anyway, um, but I didn't know what. I'd started when I was 14 making Super 8 movies as, at school, and uh, I couldn't wait to, to leave school. I was, I was done at 16. I was in the music room or I was on the stage learning about lighting. I, the last thing I was doing was sitting in lessons. I was, I was ready to move on. And um, so I went to, to work in, as a projectionist. I had no concept of how movies were made, really, other than what I'd shot on my little 8 millimeter camera. So as, I was as they were teaching me to thread the film and to get the arcs set up correctly on the projectors, I just watched these movies unfold and, and, and adored it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So sort of jumping forward to, to all, all the in-between pieces where I went to work in a documentary company and joined the BBC in, in London. And that's where I kind of got more into sound work. But it was really by default because I picked up a recorder that, in this little company that people didn't know how to operate. And they said, can you learn how to switch this thing on and put, plug a microphone in? And I said, yeah, I'll have a go. So it was, it was literally this kind of weird thing where I just sort of, well, I could do that. And then I played around with a music library, a Keith Prowse music library, which, which I loved putting all the different tracks of me. I loved listening to all the different pieces of music and imagining what images I would conjure up by hearing that music, which of course is, you know, the opposite of being shown some images and then having to come up with a piece of music to go with it. So um, I sort of fell in love with that side of sound, if, if you like. It was not the traditional route of somebody who, necessarily was into fantastic sounds it was more what sound brought to a movie on an emotional level that in, that interested me because i think what drew me to the cinema as a young kid and wanted to work in the cinema was the sort of emotional escape that it gave me um you know i could leave my my little uh, street in the west side of london and go and suddenly watch a movie that was flying over the alps or or watch James Bond shaking his martini and, and just sort of fall in love with the notion of uh, all these different amazing places in the world to go and see. And, and so I think I was drawn into it on a very emotional level and sound just sort of came out of that. 
if, if that makes sense. Do you, do you remember uh, when you realized that this wasn't just a gig that you fell into, but it was a gig that was a career? Well, I think I began to really understand it and take it seriously when I started mixing at the BBC and was working on some of the dramas and some of the documentaries and some of the TV shows where I actually started to really connect with the different directors and the different editors that would come through the studio that, that I was working out of. I was really an assistant, but the mixer I was working with was a wonderful guy who taught me an awful lot, but he also was an antique dealer on the side. So he would take every opportunity to go off and uh, sell some clocks and watches <laughs> and, and leave me to mix the TV show, which, of course, I was delighted. And by the way, the clients were also delighted because they knew I was interested in doing it and didn't want to go and sell clocks and watches. <laughs> so, 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 so in a way, I, was, I had a great sort of baptism of, uh, or, or an awakening, if you like, at that point where I felt, okay, yeah, I'm, I, I like this. This is cool. This is fun. I did a little bit of location work early on, and I didn't like that so much because um, I felt more comfortable when I was in a sort of a, 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 a surrounding that um, was familiar as opposed to standing out in the middle of a field holding a microphone or something. I actually preferred being sitting at a mixing console. The very first time I ever went into a mixing room, which I had taken some music to, to go and be recorded, um, and I watched this guy sort of just sitting at this crazy console and destroying all the work I'd been preparing for the last three <laughs> days. And I remember looking at him thinking, boy, if, if I ever do that job, I'd be a lot nicer to people than he is to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, but I, but I enjoyed that environment. So when, when I got to do that at the BBC, I think that's when I started to really sort of embrace that and, and uh, look forward to it. And, and then I went to an independent studio in London, and that's really where I got my big break because that's where I met um, Ken Russell. And, and Ken Russell was the first person who I was doing a very small TV uh, documentary with, and he said, I have a feature and I'd like you to do it. And, of course, I was blown away by that. And he really transported me to Shepherdson Studios, which is the big, one of the big studios in England, Pinewood, Shepherdson, Elstree were the big three studios in those days. And, um, and that's where I really kicked off into full speed, if you like. Uh, it's just, it's crazy how many movies you pack in in any given year. I mean, it's 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 really quite a feat. And, and I know it's not like you don't have to deal with going to set or all of that sort of stuff. Like you have a very specific part of the post-production process. Let's talk a little right. bit just about what that involves. Like when do you come on to a film? Uh, how long do you end up working on a film? And what really are you doing? What does a re-recording mixer actually do? As far as coming on to a film, I'm normally working on a film um, average, I would say, between six, anything between five, six, seven, eight weeks, something in that range, depending on the type of picture, obviously. Some of them are, are, are quite short and fast and others are, are extensive and take a little bit longer. So I think the longest I've ever done is about three months, probably. Mm. Um, because uh, generally there just isn't the time, quite honestly. I mean, nowadays, you know, we know the release date of the film pretty much as soon as I know whether I'm going to work on it or not. And you kind of figure out where you're going to fit into that because we're the last, really, we're the last creative process in filmmaking. Um, simultaneous to us is the, the color timing, the DI work, but really we're the last sort of process before the release date. So you can look nowadays at a release date back up 
roughly four to five weeks and say that's really where we've got to be done. And even if you get a schedule that says it's going to be earlier, nine times out of ten it slides around and, and, and falls into that later spot because, you know, films are done very quickly these days and, and the schedules are, are very tough. So, um, and then in, as far as involvement goes, you know, I love to be involved as early as possible just because I want to get to know everybody. Now, if it's, a, if it's somebody like, um, you know, Steven Spielberg, who I'm just can't believe that I've just done the 18th, I think it's the 18th film. With him. Holy cow. Um, That's you know, amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, now we, we have a shorthand already. So, I, but again, I, I, as soon as, as earliest I can see the film, the better. I'm not a fan of reading the script personally, just because, see, if a sound designer has to read the script because they have to start preparing, you know, literal sounds to go with the movie, whether it's a science fiction or whether it's uh, background sounds or, or whatever. But I don't have to do that because I'm literally handling that material when it's been prepared. Um, so I find reading a script doesn't necessarily help me very much. I'd much rather wait and see an early cut of the film because to me that's the... It's, that's my discovery process of what the film is. If I read a script, I start to place characters in my head. I start to imagine people playing those roles. And then when I see it, it may not be what I was thinking of. So in a way, I'd rather just come to it fresh. Um, the, um, the difference between um, you know, what I do and, and what the sound editors do is the sound editor's designer comes on earlier than I do on the process. And again, they're the ones that would have to read the script and would have to start to understand, particularly if it's something that has to be created, something very special, uh, and start to feed things to the cutting room and give them sounds to play with in the avid as they're cutting the movie. Really, the earliest I get involved in it, in any form of actual physical work, is the very first time that they want to show it to an audience, because usually what they'll want to do at that point is take the soundtrack onto a mixing stage and spend one, two, three, four days just to polish it up and get it into quick shape so that it will play in a regular movie theater in front of three or 400 people and roughly balanced so that they'll hear the dialogue correctly. Now, obviously, at that point, you're dealing with temporary music, which is just pieces of music uh, from libraries and uh, soundtracks of other movies, usually. And, um, and fairly straightforward sound effects work that doesn't have a tremendous amount of uh, time spent on it because it just it usually isn't the time. We need to get the thing out to preview fairly quickly. So that would be the first time that I would normally get involved. Now, quite often I'm in the middle of another movie at that time, so I can't do it. So what I'll do at the very least is try and get to the actual preview itself if it's in Los Angeles and I can get there in in an evening and, and go and watch it. Uh, I always like to try and watch it with an audience just because you experience it then through their eyes and uh, gives me, it helps me to understand if it's a comedy, you know, where the laughs are landing and how, how we have to sort of handle the level of certain lines of dialogue, things like that. Um, but just, just, just to absorb the feel of the movie really and to see how it's, how it's playing. And then when, when it comes onto my stage, that's the first thing I do is I go through all the dialogue work. I usually spend a couple of weeks and I'll go through every line of dialogue and just make sure that everything's clean and clear and you can understand it and match in any replacement lines that we've had to record. Um, 
And then my next role then is to sit and balance the music and the dialogue because at that point, a second mixer comes to join me and they're the ones handling all the sound effects. I only handle the music and the dialogue. And uh, so we work as a team of two. And uh, for many years, I had a regular partner, but nowadays it's more a la carte. You know, the director will have a designer that they like to work with, and then the designer will come and work with me and we'll mix the movie together. So then you're doing the the, the dialogue and the music, um, but obviously you two have to work pretty closely together because if they're mixing the sound effects and you want to have the music come up in a certain place, but they have some big sound effects there, you guys have to somehow have a have conversations about how, how are we going to blend all of this together then, right? Absolutely. I think the thing, the, the, the way I normally work um, is that I start with the dialogue because generally speaking, and there are a few directors that, 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 that don't quite go down this road, but generally speaking, most people want the dialogue to be front and center through the movie. And so you start with that. That's my sort of foundation, if you like. Um, I, I usually immediately, when I've done that for one reel, I'll take the music for that very reel and blend that into the dialogue. Again, these are just rough passes, but they're just to get a, a shape. It's like building blocks. I, I build the music. The reason I do that is that unlike the sound effects, the music, you can't just drown out the music. There's a, re there's a purpose for the music. It's, it's either adding excitement, it's adding emotion, or it's uh, counting the rhythm, it's giving you a pulse. There, there's all sorts of different reasons why there's a piece of music against some images. So I always look at it as, okay, if the composer has written this piece of music, there's a reason it starts where it starts, and there's a reason it ends where it ends. So let's lay that in. And then the next pass, we'll start to introduce the sound effects. It, it's not, it's not, I don't do it in that order to, to make the sound effects less important. It's just that it, it, it's for me, it's a more, uh, it just gives me a roadmap. And usually the sound effects person that I'm working with feels exactly the same way. They need to know where the music is to know how we can start to blend. Now then obviously we go through and we'll watch the scenes as we put them together. At that point, we either have the director with us or sometimes they don't come, they want us to prepare it and just you know run it, run it for them when we feel we have a pass. So really, at that point, we have to have the discussion of, okay, what this particular moment, you know, if there's a very obvious sound effect that's, that's got to, that is telling the story. And again, what you're always looking for through, the, through this entire process is story points. Every single thing is, 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 is about story. Everything we do in sound is to tell story. So if there's a conflict between the music and the sound effects, Normally, the very worst thing that, that, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I had to do this, but sometimes you just literally sort of turn everything off and you're just watching the story again. Just forget everything we've done. Let's just get, remind ourselves what the reason that this picture has been edited, it's been recorded, filmed, cut in a certain way to tell the story. What are we telling the story with best? Oh, okay, I get it. Those sound effects there are very, very important because they're key moments that, for character, I'm going to have to underplay the music more so that we can get all those sounds through correctly. Or the opposite happens, and, and you go, the music is, is providing the emotion. The sound effects are not, don't have to dominate in this moment. So we, we kind of make those decisions as we go through. 
and often the director will be with us and clearly then we have somebody who's going to be very vocal in the decision making and, and that's great i love it i mean i personally love having a strong director with me who's um you know you learn so much i learn something every single day from from every director i work with how's spielberg i bet he's a bossy one <laughs> <laughs> he is unbelievable. I the, the man is so intuitive and so extraordinary. He's so laser sharp in in picking things up that you sort of hit your forehead and go, "Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't see that moment or understand why we cut to that shot at that moment." And then he'll he'll explain something that will become incredibly clear. I mean, what I love about Stephen is he's um. He's one of those that will let us do our pass and he'll come in and watch it. And it's so good because he doesn't focus on, he doesn't obsess about any of the moments that are working, which a lot of people do. He'll go straight to the bits that aren't working and we'll, we'll, go, to, we'll go to work on those. And uh, I love that about him. He's so uh, intuitive in that way. When you reflect on your work, and, and I'll, I'll say specifically of Spielberg, but you know, you're on uh, Star Wars uh, Episode Nine coming up, which is in pre-production now. When you are working with directors again, what is it that you find these directors are looking for in you, right? How, what are, what is it, what is your particular skill set that makes you the right fit for them and, and right for the, for the movie? Wow. Gosh, that's a, that's a tough one. Trust is, is very important. I think sort of confidence, but, but still a complete willingness to try anything and go in any direction. I guess an understanding of of story and a willingness to tell it the best way we can, not to over dramatize the event. Maybe if I, I, I don't know, it's hard to talk about why somebody would pick me. <laughs> it's a it's a hard topic for me to to, to talk about. But I think it's just um, it's it's a comfort in the team uh, that, that you kind of grow. And I think that, that a lot of the directors I've worked with, repeat directors like Alan Parker is, and Michael Mann, obviously, and it's that sense of just, um, they don't, they don't have to get to know me. I think they just, they know me already. So in, in a way it's like, check one thing off the list and <laughs> just, just jump in. There are already so many I, people on a film that, you know, having one that you can trust and knock that out early is, is probably pretty nice. I, I think that's a, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of films for, Jeffrey Katzenberg, when he was running DreamWorks Animation, I did, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 of those movies. And he would just come in at the very final playback. And I know for a fact that he just had a complete trust in me. And that was the thing. And, and I'd be, every film was a different director or a different editor, but it didn't matter. He was him. He, he was the final say of the studio. And he used to say to them, just let Andy have his pass and and uh, and then we'll kind of get in and we'll do our little work and we'll be done. And he, it's just a sense that I was going to get it to a point that he was comfortable with quickly and, and reliably, I guess. Yeah. With all the, I mean, you've you've worked on such a variety of projects. Do you have any any genres that you feel like, oh, I really enjoy working on this particular type of genre? Anything like that that stands out to you? Well, you know, I do really love the musicals that I've worked on. And I think that's just because I'm a, a music lover and, and, and that's kind of, as I said to you at the beginning, it's kind of what drew me in I, in many ways to this business was a sort of love of music and, and music and images. So put that into a musical and I'm usually in, in heaven. So uh, when I did La La Land, for instance, uh, um, Damien Chazelle came to see me. I was actually in the middle of the last Star Wars at the time 
and uh, he um, he came to see me because of uh, the work I'd done on Les Miserables, which was all live vocals. Yeah, and right. uh, 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 you know that that was a that was a tremendous um, film to work on for that reason alone. It was a broke ground in many ways. It was literally sung live from top to bottom, apart from the very first shot in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, and had never been done before. So, um, so he came to see me and talked about La La Land, which I, I was very excited as soon as he told me about the film. And um, I think I get more excited about those types of pictures than anything. Yeah, just because uh, great music and images are phenomenal together. Oh, those are good ones. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're my genre. They're my genre. And remember, I'm not a sound effects mixer, therefore... If I said to you a big action movie, it would be a bit strange because it's not what I physically do. Right, right. Although, but I am a big part of it. So, um, I mean, not to say I don't enjoy those. We have great time. I mean, Star Wars and those. I mean, you see, I don't look at Star Wars as as a as sound effect. I still think of it as a music film because <laughs> anything, anything with John Williams involved is automatically a music a musical as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Uh, do do you find these you know the the sort of genre differences? Do you find them more challenging uh, one more challenging the, than the other? You know, I'm 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 thinking specifically about two. Uh, Ready Player One, obviously, you're wrapped or rapping as we record this, uh, and uh, that is a uh, going to be a big effects movie. Uh, and, For sure. And, and then you have movies like Heat, right? That that have you know, and Michael Mann stylistically is you know does things with sound and vocals and natural sound, and uh, that that I have. To to imagine are enormously challenging for you yes yeah they are very much so and uh and michael just because of the style of the way he works which is a he has a very specific way that he works a little bit like christopher nolan actually where well i haven't worked with christopher but i know the people who work with him where he'll build a track and we'll just sort of keep that track and keep expanding it through the whole process you know you don't sort of start again you just build and build and build on the same thing michael's very much like that which is a very interesting way of working. It's hard because it, uh, as the film gets recut and recut, it's very hard to keep the continuity of sound work that goes with that. But um, that is his style, and um, it's very demanding. Um, Ready Player One, yeah, big. I'm very excited by it. Actually, we just we're literally wrapping it up now and uh, checking prints and things, and uh, it's phenomenal. It's, it's a lot of fun. Alan Silvestri actually did the music on that, which was. Uh, the departure mainly because John Williams had been doing the post, and the two were so tightly fitted together that uh, it was never going to work uh, without having somebody else. And, and John was very supportive of Alan Silvestri on that film, and uh, he did. Alan did a fabulous job again. A lot of great music in the film, but a lot of fantastic sound design by Gary Rydstrom, and uh, um, beautiful, really, really a lot of fun. But yeah, I think that for me the difference is. See, the thing about the different genres is it keeps me fresh all the time. I, I would hate to do the same thing over and over. And uh, I love going from a, a, you know, a big giant film to, to a very small sort of Fox searchlight, you know, something just very special. Um, and then when I can get my hands on those, I love them because they're my, they kind of, you know, equalize the pressure a little bit and give me a, a, a different perspective, which I, which I like a lot. Over all the films that you've done, do you find it easy at all to, if, if I were to ask you, you know, which ones are you most proud of? Uh, is that something that's easy to ask? Or is it like, they're all my babies? <laughs> or do you even, I mean, you've got, my goodness, man, you've got 223 credits. Do you even remember them all? 
<laughs> well, I, I, I have trouble with some of them, I have to be honest. But, uh, most of That's, them I That should be the game. Well. I'm going to read a list of movies. You tell me the ones you didn't work on, and we'll see what you, what you pass or fail. <laughs> oh, gosh. Can, can, I, uh, can, I, can I have a drink for yeah. everyone I missed? <laughs> there you go. The new drinking game. Here's the thing. When somebody says to me, what's your favorite type of music? I have no answer because I, it's mood dependent for me. I can listen to jazz. I can listen to a lot of classical and some really great rock. You know, I don't, it, I have no choice that's one choice. And I feel the same way about film, which is that, that, um, you know, they all occupy different places, uh, uh, in, in my heart. And I think, you know, I, I know that one that really resonated and hung with me for a long, long time was when I did Schindler's List. Now, clearly that's, you know, the subject matter was very intense, but just the process and the love that went into what Stephen did with that film and the, you know, the fact that he shot it in black and white. And, uh, I remember we were on film in those days and it was, uh, very, it was long, but it took us a long time to do. But every single day was, was an extraordinary experience going down that road and watching it when it was all completed was, uh, was very powerful. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that's a favorite, but it's very, very memorable in the sense of uh, I, I don't really have favorites, but they, they all occupy different places and different times. They remind me of different parts of my life as well. That's the, the weird thing. I can remember when I was doing Jacob's Ladder with Adrian Lyon and, and my second, second child was born. And I remember having to go back to the mixing stage because we were in the middle of these intense scenes and... You know, I sort of mark my calendar by films or uh, over the years in, in, in odd ways like that. <laughs> I think that's probably the way with the, with everyone, you know, and working. It's just like those are the things that stick out. You know, oh, oh yeah, my my uh, my kid, uh, you know, learned to bike, ride his bike while I was working on that project because I wasn't there or whatever it may be. All those strange little things. It's true, and you miss a lot of uh, yeah. boy. I missed a lot of family events when when my kids were younger, for sure. When I was really really working on on my career and building it and, and not wanting to sort of say no to anybody i'm a little bit happier to say no now yeah but in those days i i was very uh, anxious not to so i think yeah i missed a lot of family events for sure one of the um, I, I want to step back a little bit to the technology. Uh, one of the things that has just, well, I say, opened my ears in the last couple of years is is being able to drive about you know fifty minutes from my house to the only Atmos equipped theater in in our area. Uh, Atmos is I, I would see an Atmos movie long long before I would see a film, uh, you know, a three D film or a super you know seat shaking film. I just I just love it. I, I wonder what you, if you could give us your sense on on Atmos and what the what the process looks like where does does that enter into where you are are working mixing in the just you know in, incredible you know 700 channels all around or <laughs> yes it does absolutely no we we equip this uh, i'm based at, at, at fox uh, here in beverly hills and we um we have fabulous sounding rooms that we we opened 20 years ago now um we upgraded them all to atmos uh, a few years back here and uh they um I, I love utilizing it. My, my, my only fear, as always, is I want to make sure that we don't sacrifice um, the bulk of the audience. The problem with Atmos is simply that it isn't in enough places yet. That's it. If, if it were in more places, um, you know, 
I think we would all feel much happier because we all, I think we all enjoy working in it. But what we're constantly trying to do is reference back to a regular 5-1 mix just to make sure that we're not being too elitist with it. How does that work then? So you do you do the 5-1 mix and finish the film and then you sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, up res it or you're, you're sort of going down? No, we go down. In the, in the very beginning, we did that. We did up, up mix it because we didn't have, it was very new and um, it had to go to, a, actually in those days, over to a different room, over to the, one of the Dolby rooms and, and then spend another week or so. And it's expensive and honestly um, not very good because you've kind of mixed the movie and now you're having another go at it in some ways, you know, often without the director really having much time to, to be involved. So, so the way we do them now, and we've certainly done quite a lot like this, is we will, put, we will start in Atmos. In other words, start with the biggest version of the movie and then pare down to the smallest version. But what we try and do um, uh, is constantly reference what the smaller version will sound like so that we're not really having to, you know, we're, we're making sure that we're covering the, the, all the audience everywhere by, by, um, by being mindful of that. When going back to the Jeffrey Casper with some of the animation films the, the last few I did were actually in Atmos but he he would say let's look we're going to mix it in that in Atmos because we need that release format but we'll really pay attention to the 5-1 which is really what you know 90% of the audience are going to see or hear and um and we still do that now to a to a degree I mean with uh, with Ready Player One we mixed in Atmos and we were uh, Gary and I would constantly just you know check things out make sure they were still sounding great in 5-1 and they were so, you know, you just got to be a bit mindful of that, I think. That's all. Well, I'm, I'm very excited for the Atmos release of Ready Player One in particular. That's what I'm going to make the drive for. Will it be worth it, please, I hope? <laughs> absolutely. Okay. I, 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 yes, it absolutely will. Well, I mean, the thing, about, uh, the thing about Atmos, listen, I did La La Land in Atmos. And the reason I did it was, you know, there were no big giant effect sequences in La La Land. But the difference in just the sonic quality of the music is phenomenal because... Um, it, uh, you know, the full range surround system, which you only have in Atmos, really, uh, really makes the music sing. Um, and I always mix a little bit wider. I, I usually spread the music just a little bit wider in Atmos. And so you just get a sense of this sort of, the screen feels bigger all of a sudden, you know. You know, there are these, the, the, the release of, you know, Logan, for example, that came out in black and white. You know, they have these black and white things. La La Land has such a classical sort of aesthetic to it. I almost feel like you should down-res it to just stereo and black and white and maybe add some <laughs> grain to it. That's the perfect view of La La Land. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, well, we started La La Land. It started as an old-fashioned uh, title, if you remember. Yeah. We, we kind of started in mono. Yes. And then we op- then we opened it out into stereo. We did we did the reverse of what they said. <laughs> <laughs> That's the spirit. No, it, it, Atmos has been really a, a fantastic treat, and I find that its moments. And I, I I don't remember which of the Apes movies. I think it was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, where there's a scene where they go into like a rainy, uh, or it's it's just kind of the forest, and there's rain coming down. And just and I just remember like looking up like I felt like there was rain coming down, like the the way that the sound played in the theater was just like it was mind blowing to me. And it was just such a it wasn't like, you know, big, big explosions and spaceships flying across the sky or anything. It was just like it was just rain. And I'm like, this is really mind blowing what's happening right now. I remember that sequence well. And we 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 were we were having a lot of fun with that rain. But here's the thing. I tell you what's interesting about Atmos is that it's, it is more effective in the quieter scenes, actually. Because sure. once you fill a room, once you start to fill a room with a lot of sound, 
you lose sort of directional sense in a way. You're just filling the room with a lot of level. But when you go into the very quiet moments and then you place something right above your head or to one side, it's so much more effective. There's a couple of trailers that Atmos have that uh, Gary Rystrom did one of them, uh, which is a little leaf that blows around the auditorium. Yeah, right, yeah. right? And he designed the sound for that and mixed it. And that is the most effective use, I think, because there's a loud trailer that sounds amazing, but it doesn't have anything like the charm of, of the, that leaf blowing quietly around the room, which really tells you everything about the sound system that you're sort of experience it. Well, and to your point about, uh, you know, I remember my experience at, at uh, okay, it was one of the last, uh, maybe it was the last Star Wars movie I saw in Atmos. It was the, the when the fanfare opens up and I was sitting in one of the adult sections, you know, I was drinking a beer and doing my thing. And, and so the rest of the theater, I couldn't see down below my feet. And I remember thinking, how do they do that? That feels like a live orchestra is sitting right down below me and they have placed it so perfectly. I feel like I could look over there and spit on a cellist it was amazing <laughs> well that's that opening is that you're talking about the very opening yeah. fanfare right yeah. yeah no i i i when i did force awakens um it was actually quite funny because both jj abrams who i adore yeah. and the producer brian burke uh, were both every time i would play it they'd say can we just turn it out just one more tiny bit just tiny bit and i'd say okay we'll just come <laughs> on and then we got it to a point when it was just like bang it just came in like that and then everyone was just thumbs up and excited. And then one of them turned to me and said, any chance you can go up just a tiny bit? Right? I said, no, you're insane. We're done. We're done. It's as loud as it can be. And I actually had people comment to me afterwards about, boy, you hit that first note really hard on that film. But it was like the orchestra was in the room. It, it just... It just flew out the screen at you, didn't it? Oh, that it's was, just stunning. It's Everybody in the audience, your blood is coming out of their ears, but they're <laughs> cheering and crying, man, so you win. That's <laughs> so all well, good. Uh, you're absolutely right. And in fact, it's funny you say that because I was worried that I had pushed it a little bit too much. And I went to the, to the premiere of the cast and crew. And of course, as soon as the logo came up, everyone started roaring. And you could even barely hear the fact. <laughs> because, so I thought, I don't know why I was worried. Right. It, it's Star Wars. Yeah, you don't need to worry about it's that. Star Everyone's Wars. cheering. Well, I, I suppose we should jump into this movie that we're, we're here to talk about. Um, we invited you uh, to join us to talk about one of your favorite movies. And, and uh, you picked a, a really magical little film from 1983 uh, that Bill Forsyth wrote and directed called Local Hero. I love that film. It's my go-to film for... When I joined, when I left the BBC uh, uh, early 80s and um, I went to this studio in Soho in London, uh, which was my first sort of break really into, into that world, uh, freelance TV, small motions, small uh, movies. They had just finished a tiny film called Gregory's Girl at that studio. And the, and the, the guy that ran the studio hired me was very proud of this film and I saw it and I loved it, loved it, loved it. And so I kept, I remember walking into the studio thinking, oh, I'm going to work in the same studio that did Gregory's Girl. You know, it was like a real buzz for me at the time. Now jump forward to when I am in Toronto and I get a call and it's from Bill Forsyth and he has a film that he wants me to mix in Toronto, can you believe? And they flew over. Um, he and the editor flew over and I did this film for him. It was, it was, not the greatest of movies, I have to say. It was called Breaking In with Burt Reynolds. Mm. Um, but working with Bill 
at the time was an absolute delight. I mean, he was such a sweetheart. And I told him then how much I had loved um, Local Hero, which I didn't obviously get to work on. That was done at Elstree Studios um, in London. But how much it meant to me because um, he has... he. Uh, he had a way of capturing the most beautiful, subtle humor, humor moments and emotional moments, which I think that film encapsulated. And for me, Local Hero has always been the film, as soon as I hear the first couple of guitar notes from Mark Knopfler, it takes me right to that little village in Scotland. I, I can't think of a film that has such an extraordinary sense of place um, as that film. It just, for some reason, it's always been my go-to film. And if anyone ever says to me, what's your favorite film, what's your favorite? I always say Local Hero. And they always look strange and say, well, we imagine you'd pick some giant sound movie or something. <laughs> no, because that's not, again, that's not where my heart is. My heart was in this, the, the romance and the uh, chemistry that this film had. The end of that movie, to me, is the most heart-wrenching ending. When, when you cut to him walking out onto his deck having come back to dallas and he stands out in the night skies there and you know he's back in his apartment and then he hears you know you hear the phone ringing and you cut to that phone box back in that little village i it just makes me it it, it just breaks my heart every time i see it it's such a powerful simple piece of storytelling that that uh, bill bill just made a beautiful movie i mean for me it's uh I love it. Well, and it's an interesting Thanks. film because I I had never seen it before, and you uh, you said you wanted to watch this, and this was uh, like probably two years ago when we first started talking. <laughs> <laughs> and so I watched it, and I was like, "Well, that's an interesting little movie." That and is not what I would expect uh, coming from right, him. The, the, not at all. Where's the sound? <laughs> no, but then but then I watched it again just recently, and and I felt like it clicked for me. Like this time, I'm like, it, there was I found so much humor in such subtle little things, just like, you know, the fact that they cook the rabbit, the, the, the strange little punk girl in town who's just like, Oh, he's different. <laughs> like when she, when she's kind of falling for Peter Capaldi, um, the, the, you have these, the psychiatrist, right? The psychiatrist, the crazy psychiatrist <laughs> you know, when, he's, when he's out on the window and he's like putting stuff up on the glass there. It's like, oh, who is this crazy I man? You got the, oh, the crazy uh, the seamen who are uh, debating, you know, the qualities of the Rolls Royces versus the Maseratis. Like it's just all these little moments that that I felt like captured this sense of um, not not necessarily just place. I, I definitely feel like he captures a sense of place throughout the film, but also just it, it felt like here was this storyteller who is capturing these uh, the details of life in a way that that really kind of struck a chord and and I found it very touching in just uh, in just all of those little moments that were scattered all through the film. The first time I watched it I didn't get that, that I really struggled whether or not he was trying to be funny. I didn't I didn't get a lot of the moments of comedy. I thought oh maybe that was a mistake and it just didn't go over very well. Second time I watched it is just amazing. It is it, I mean you're right. When you see the the sort of punctuation the coda at the end of the film of him alone in his kitchen on his deck uh th that is uh and and maybe it's because I'm suddenly a man of a certain age, you know, that that those it, it is so resonant to me that feeling of loss, absolute loss. And I think that's the thing and maybe it's maybe it resonates with me over the years more and more because I'm basically, you know, born and bred in London and I live in, in Los Angeles and 
and uh, I this is my home. This is where my family is now. I mean, I have no no reason to go back to England, although I adore England and I'm very happy whenever I go back. I I can't imagine going back to live there, but a film like that it tears me tears at me because it's really that's where the roots are. You know, in not Scotland specifically, although my wife is Scottish, but just that sense of identity and community and belonging to something. And that's where I feel that the end of the movie was so poignant because he'd, he'd experienced that sense of a community and a family. And now he'd gone back to his life, which on the surface looks like the hell, heck of a life with the Porsche and the, but actually it, it was completely empty and shallow. And I think it just, it just catches me every time. And you, and the little bits of humor, I know if you remember the two, two older guys at the Cayley, you know, the dance, but when they're having a, they're having a little conversation about the money. And one of them says about, uh, uh, how much, how much do you think it is? And, and the other one says a certain number. And then very slowly they start to jig to the music. <laughs> that, that's Bill Forsyth because that was genius. Cause that just, you, you sense that they're trying to be, they're trying to be just, you know, very cool about this whole thing, but actually they're incredibly excited inside. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I just, and then there's a shot where there's, I think the vicar's standing outside the church and you see a whole, they've had a meeting in the church and, and you see a whole stream of people in the background, way out in the distance, running across the field. Bill, Bill Forsyth. It's, it's, it's not, it's not laugh out loud humor. It's never laugh out loud with him. It's very, very internal. Well, it, it, it's got a funny sensibility to it because the whole film, right? I mean, the, the narrative premise is that, you know, this big oil company is coming in and they're going to essentially buy the island and turn it into a refinery. And they want to get the, you know, get the occupants of this little village out of there and they're going to pay him off. And what you think is that this is a natural resources movie. And in a sense, it sort of is. But the fact that the uh, that the inhabitants of this island will take the money and leave, I think, is uh, it's sort of the root of the humor of this thing. Like, he sets it up in such a way that it's actually a brilliant kind of economic joke that uh, that everybody's doing this negotiation. And in fact, they're all in favor of it. Of course, of course. They're Scottish. They want to have some money. They're, they're, lo they're loving the idea of it. But underneath it all is... Uh, is this sort of gentleness. I, I tell you, talk about sound, though. See, see again, it's like we were talking about Atmos working in, in very quiet moments. To me, that's when, when everything stops in that film and there's silence, you just hear one loon in the background or just a very gentle wash of the ocean or this startling sound of that motorbike suddenly tearing <laughs> through the shop, yes. which is very Scottish, by the way, and very Irish as well, <laughs> or, or a low-flying jet that almost takes your head off from yeah, one right. of the local... Air Force bases. I mean, that is exactly what it's like in those places. And um, so I think even though it was a t a, a, not a sound movie, it's just every, there's every bit of sound movie as anything for me because those singular sounds take me somewhere that is story and emotion, which is exactly what I love about this business. Well, and that's, you know, speaking back to the the end of the film, you know, the phone ringing and everything. But then I, I think there's also, you know, he's he's kind of out looking out over his his home where he is. 
And uh, but that sound is kind of what brings him back. And it's like and the sky outside, it's like it's not the same sky. And even though, you know, you had these amazing vistas of the northern lights, you also had these jets flying by detonating bombs over on the other side of the hill for you know some crazy thing. It was like there was such this yin yang uh, experience that he had while he was in this little village. But all of those things, whether it was the, the jets or the northern lights or whatever, all of those things made up that that magical experience that he had and it created that that kind of world for him that all of a sudden he's he's fallen for and has left you know he's kind of left uh, because of his job but, but now he's like that's all of a sudden where his heart is and it really is it's poignant and it's touching and it is those those um those moments the 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 physical things or the visual things or the oral things that 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 connect you to a place and i found that really magical about the movie well that that's it that's me too that's exactly it that's why i'm drawn back to it all the time it's the simplicity of it and the economy of the use of things that just works just connects and i i just think it's a, it's a very simple but beautiful film and uh, i knew you guys would find it odd <laughs> <laughs> I knew it, but I thought, what the heck, you uh, know, throw it, throw it in there and see what you think. Uh, it's a real, it's a real gift. And, and frankly, I don't expect the sort of nuanced performance that, that we get out of Peter Rigert, who is generally, I know, as being sort of hard edged. And he starts that way, but, uh, but I really feel for him by the end, mostly because he has to leave, uh, you know, Dennis Lawson, who, you know, Wedge Antilles, yeah. come on. I want that guy to be my best friend. <laughs> like, I wanted to chill with Urquhart. He was fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And again, Andy, yeah. to Andy's point, that this sort of yin and yang of this, their relationship, I, I really saw such an interesting balance where this is sense of sort of anxiety on Reichert's part. And, and Lawson comes in with this all just consummate, just sort of meditative mindfulness that everything will be fine. We will be fine. I'm soft-spoken and gentle, and we'll figure it out. And uh, I, I found it just a fantastic pairing on screen. Oh, well, that's good. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm oh, very so much. Glad, yeah. Very well, yeah, no, I, uh, I, as I say, it's, uh, it holds a special place. It is one of those films, though, that I, I feel like uh, it warrants more than one viewing. Because, like mm -hmm. I said, the first viewing, I was like, well, that was a pe peculiar little film. But it, it's, 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 it's taking it in more than once. And I think there are films out there. I mean, my favorite film is Brazil. That's that's uh, just for me, just a, a masterpiece of a film. I love watching what Terry Gilliam is doing there. But and I understand some people watch it and just they'll watch it once and go, wow, I that was a crazy little thing. And they don't really fully get it. And I do think that there are movies out there that, you know, sometimes it takes multiple viewings to really start kind of clicking and understanding, oh, OK, there's a lot more going on here than I absorbed in that in that first viewing. You know, it's I, I think it, it sometimes can take some time sitting with something. Oh, but don't you think that applies to uh, art and music in general? Because, I mean, I, I've, I've fallen in love with pieces of music that initially I, I wasn't sure about. And over a period of time, it, it, it finds a place in me that I will never forget. And pieces of artwork do that as well. Oh, absolutely. Where you can look at something and walk away and come back again and look at it again. And then after about the fifth time, you start to really see something very special and i think that's that to me is the making of anything that's really wonderfully creative with an emotional connection i uh, i 
love Burt Lancaster in this movie, and I'm I'm I would love to get your sense of his of of what his character is trying to say. I have a, a connection with him. I, maybe it's because you know one of my favorite films is Network, uh, the mm-hmm. Patty Chayefsky film, and I I think that that movie has such a message around uh, the sort of corporatization industrialization of media and in this case we have an example of uh of an executive a corporate executive and he's he's saying something i mean here's a guy who is into uh the phases of the moon and watching the sky and looking for signs and all of these things what's your what's your take on lancaster's uh lancaster's character i think he's misplaced in 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 the corporate world i think he's got there through all the devices of his career, but but that's not where his heart is. And I think he just runs a company, but has been yearning for for a part of his life to to come to him in a different form. And I think that this this opportunity, when he sees the opportunity of of uh, of, of going over there and and actually meeting the people and understanding what's going on, is is that part of him that he's missing. In, in, in his day-to-day life, if you like. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I think the whole psychiatrist thing is just a wonderful uh, sort of decoy almost because, I mean, that's just, that's just pure out-and-out humor. But, but I, I, I think he's just, a, I think he's just a, an executive who's got a lot more to offer. Well, it's such a wonderful vessel uh, using, you know, Riker to actually live out his own dreams, you know, and, and yeah. I, I think that's such a... Great he's jealous that yeah. he, he's jealous that he's gone there, yeah. and that's why he wants to connect with him all the time. And uh, in the end, he can't hold back anymore. He's got to get out there himself. Well, and he does seem like uh, you know, it, had his life been different, and had he been living here, he would have been that old man living on the in the shack on the beach with no door, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, just just uh, just living in harmony with. With with the ocean and the beach and yeah. counting grains yeah. of sand or whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> so now you know. Here's a question. So Jenny Seagrove's in it. Uh, she plays Marina. Um, and and she has webbed feet. What what's your thought of the the webbed feet? I mean, I I have my own uh, thoughts, but uh, what do you think of that little uh, surprise that uh, that surprises Peter Capaldi quite a bit? Little little shape of water going on there, right? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Do you think she's got webbed feet, or do you think that's what he's seeing? I've never, I've never really come to terms with whether that's real or whether that's his in his mind. Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because because uh, even looking at this film, I was like, you know, it, there's this magical realism about it, but it's almost like without the magical side of it. You know, it's 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 not like we're seeing. It's it's not like. Um, Oh, what's that uh, fantastic film, The Secret of Rowan Inish, or something, where all of a sudden selkies are appearing? Right? Yeah. Uh, it's this. This has a little hints of that, but it never really goes into it completely. Never goes. There. And and no, so because I th- yeah, and so that's because a- I think because I feel it's because I feel it's it's not it's not necessarily real. I think it's just uh, a, a, a longing or a, a sense of uh, imagination. I don't necessarily think those moments are real. I think they're perceived. Well, and that's moments. that's a really interesting perspective, and I'm glad that you said that because I was like, it's 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 like the one moment that all of a sudden we're like, are we we're hinting at something else that might be going on here? But she never really goes full selkie no, or mermaid or anything, goes. and so no, not at all. So that was that's actually a really interesting perspective, and I'm going to have to think about that a lot more now. So. <laughs> I wish I wish we could call up Bill Forsyth and ask him. Right, what were you thinking? <laughs> right, yeah, 
very interesting moment. But you know, I, you know, I love her in it. I love the 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 really quirky and and uh, quick relationship that she and uh, and Olson have in the film you know just kind of the love on the beach that they have and you know just the way that the way that it their relationship shapes and ends and everything it was just it was really kind of a a, a touching little uh little kind of a thing that they have going on here i enjoyed that i enjoyed that and also i i love the relationship with the with the the um i can't remember the character's name who runs the bar you know the dennis lawson Urquhart. Urquhart, Urquhart, yeah. yes he, he, him and his wife as well and 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 just the, the sort of you know they're they're always at it the pair of them <laughs> as much as they, which um, but it's completely okay and yet and yet you know and again our you know our character's not really um, it's so different from his life back in in Texas that it just it just seems out of place and yet completely normal and ordinary and that's why he falls in love with her of course and. And their relationship, he's envious of, and wishes he could swap. And uh, I just, uh, it's, it's very sweet. Well, even the way that particular relationship ends, when when Urquhart's like, "Oh, why, you know, she's upstairs. Why don't you go say <laughs> goodbye to her?" He's like, "No, it's okay." You know, just the, just the way that 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 closes. I'm like, that was actually really. It, it ended in a way I wasn't expecting, and but it all, made it all the more touching because of it. Yeah. No. I uh, the whole helicopter ride out is. Oh, it's so special! Yeah, with that music <laughs> swelling, yeah, good really, stuff. It's a, yeah. Fantastic! I went to see Mark Knopfler play in in the mid '80s, just after that movie had come out, and I actually went to see Dire Straits at Wembley Stadium. And at the end of the show, he actually sat down on the front of the stage. The lights came on, and the roadies started clearing up all the stage, and he sat and played that theme on his own. Just with his feet dangling off the stage, it was so incredible. I can only imagine a, just how magical can, that would be. You know, I can still see it now. Yeah, the, yeah, and this was his first uh, film score that he did. Um, which uh, I mean, uh, I'm yeah. glad he started somewhere because that gave us the Princess Bride. Eventually, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's uh, some yeah. great music that he's uh, given to some films. So, I, I wish he'd do some more. Yeah. I wish he'd do some more. I think he's so talented. Yeah. Love, love listening to his music. This was a this was a film that uh, you know it was quite popular. The Baftas it had seven nominations. Uh, Bill Forsyth did win for Best Direction, um, and then the uh, the other six it was nominated, but it lost uh, Best Cinematography, lost to uh, Fanny and Alexander, Sven Nykvist. Best Editing lost to Flashdance. Best Film lost to Educating Rita. Best Original Screenplay lost to The King of Comedy. Best Score lost to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And uh, Best Supporting Actor, Burt Lancaster, he lost to Denim Elliott for Trading Places. So there's some in there uh, that I would say I could agree with. And some I'm like, you know, like Burt Lancaster or Denim Elliott. I'm like, oh, boy, I would have picked Burt Lancaster over. uh, I mean, I love Denim Elliott. His part in Trading Places, you know, it was pretty funny, but definitely Burt Lancaster for me would have been the choice. And shame about the score as well, because I think the score has lived on. Truly. Tremendously. Yeah, and I haven't seen Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, so. I don't don't even know who the composer was. was, I think it was Ryuchi Sakamoto. Bill uh, did win Best Screenplay at the National Society of Film Critics and at the New York Film Critics Circle. So, you know, I think there were people that were recognizing that there's something with this film that that made it stand out a little bit because it it has something special going on here. I think it's like a fine wine. I think it uh, ages beautifully. Well, and there are two brilliant elements of trivia that you just have to know. The first is simply that asteroid seven three four five Hepper 
is actually named after Lancaster's character. Uh, and, and it was Lancaster's wish to have a comet named after him. But the other is actually sign that you're in great company this movie is not just your favorite film oh, yeah. it is also al gore's favorite movie oh good so, lord there you go. wow <laughs> wow i don't know what is kind of response right? i expected but that wasn't <laughs> I it I, no i'm not i was i wasn't expecting that name for some reason but uh hey you know what i'll take it it was all good company i shook his hand at the oscars did you oh, yes. about that? very good i company. did i got i got to meet him uh, years back well now you have something new to talk to him about when you see him again <laughs> if i ever see him again uh andy would you please uh, run through the numbers sir how did it do at the box office well bill bill forsyth had a budget of three million pounds or just under four and a half million dollars when you convert it uh, to the u.s dollar and that is about 10.7 million in today's dollars the movie premiered here in the states on february 18th 1983 opposite everybody's favorite the sting 2 the Lords of Discipline, and Lovesick. It was a limited release, though, and had a slow rollout, not really hitting its stride until about week 10, when it finally was pushed back into nearly 200 theaters. The movie was never a big hit, but it did find its audience, making $5.9 million in the U.S., which is 14.2 in today's dollars. I couldn't find any international figures, but I know it released in theaters around the world. Regardless, Forsyth's small charmer made its money back and landed with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $31,678. Made some money. It did it's make some money. Like that. It did make some money. I'm glad to hear that as well. All right. <laughs> now we get to the fun and games portion of our show, which I, I, I hope you will you will permit us. This is a uh, there's a website called Flickchart, flickchart.com, which takes uh, which allows us to prepare a sort of stack ranking of all of the movies that we have talked about on this show. And our, our general uh, uh, method here is we Andy will go through uh, usually it's about seven to ten pairings, uh, give or take a few, and it will pair this movie with another movie that's somewhere on our list that we've already ranked. And so over the course oh. of these rankings, we'll just pick our favorite and eventually Local Hero will land somewhere on our list. Okay. Uh, if there's a movie that you haven't seen, uh, then Andy and I will uh, duke it out. All right. Okay. All right, Andy, okay. where do we start? So first up, we have a, a speakeasy battle. This is another film we talked about. Uh, it is uh, Local Hero or Fat City. A little John Houston action going on there. Local hero or Fat City. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this hero. one to Local Hero. Definitely. Next up, oh, this uh, I this is this this is just a fun one to throw at you. Local Hero or Live Free or Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Local Hero. Oh, that is a tough one for me. Uh, how do, how would you even rank that? It is. We call that a flick chart hate crime because flick chart has no sense of genre or period or tone it just you are alone on a desert island and all you have is a tv and two dvds which one are you going to put on first well i'm going to put local hero on first oh dear i i think i'm a live free or die hard guy yeah i'm going with live free or die hard (sighs) i I just uh i I love that film so much but it's it's a principal it's a principal boss though it is very right. much. Okay. What's next? Next up, we have Local Hero or uh, The Wind Rises. Hayao Miyazaki. From Miyazaki. Oh. Uh, I'm going to be Local Hero on this one. Local Hero for me. I, I like The Wind Rises, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, we're both going with Local Hero, so it takes it. Okay. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm good with that I'm as well. I'm sure you're fine. Well, that puts uh, Local Hero at 129 on our chart. So there you go. It, it did pretty well for itself. 
But uh, yeah, that's yeah. a good place that's for it. it. You know, have you this movie? I couldn't watch this movie and not bring up the dish. Have you seen the dish, Andy? Australian film. No, I haven't. It is the story of it. It's it's a very similar sort of vibe. It's the story of uh, of um, the moon landing and NASA's uh, partnership with this very tiny little village uh, in very rural Australia. And uh, it, you know, they these guys, these just it, it's the tale of this village kind of coming together to help NASA, uh, you know, huh. communicate with the moon when the Earth was on the Australian side of of the moon and uh, it was it, it's a fascinating little story i highly recommend it i i don't know um, I, I don't know andy uh, other andy if you had the same sort of parallel but i i watched this movie and i thought that that sort of same sense of humor these this would be a great double feature yeah it's it's a really great little film that's uh you know it, it is just about this little community coming together for this big thing that's bigger than yeah. them um uh, oh. it's a really sweet little movie but yeah that's a, that's a great pairing um I, I do have to ask one last question to you, uh, Andy, before uh, before yes. we end this. So, local hero. So, the title of the film. What was your take on the title of this film? Who is this local hero? Is it Burt Lancaster? I've never thought about that. What that would mean. I don't think it's any one person. No, I think it's. I think it's the place. I don't think it's a human. That's interesting. That's a very interesting take on it. And I can see that. I don't think it's any one person, no, because it's not about that. The whole point of the film is the sort of community. I think it's more the place, if that, if that makes sense. It's really a fascinating thing. I, I you know, I, I almost, uh, you know, I was thinking about that question at going into the second watch uh, this morning. And, and it almost feels like, um, to me, local hero hit when he went home. And the local hero part was not him on the island it was him going home and and i i guess i was filled as much as i was filled with that sort of heartbreak and dread for him i was also filled with maybe it's contagious maybe he will go home and live the kind of life and bring that kind of thing back to his his life that's the only way i could end the movie and not be really despondent yeah i know i agree with you i i always imagined he just goes back yeah to the yeah. village sell the Porsche. I, I think I, I don't think he uh I think he's done with that life. Well, and it's a bit of an ironic title, and that's how I took it too, because it's like here he is this this guy from this company coming in to to you know get the company the 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 deal that they need so that they can they can uh, build their new big uh, oil rig and everything, and and you know and all of the people at his office probably say, oh yeah, he's the local hero, he's the one who goes sweeps in and and takes care of all this for us and closes the deal. He's the deal closer. I'm a telex man. You know, and it's like I and and here he is. You know, he's he's this this in this particular case, this local hero who, you know, didn't necessarily close the deal, but it's not his fault. You know, it's the it's the owner's sure. fault. And and uh, I think there is a little irony in the in the title that um, yeah, in a way through this whole process, he kind of did end up saving the village, which was this magical place that really nobody should have been leaving. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> No, it could be. I, I, uh, I've just never thought of it as, as I only see his character as just one small part of, of the bigger picture. That's the thing. So maybe that's why I've never really associated the title with him as, uh, as much as just the sense of, uh, of place. But, uh, but I'm, again, I'd love to know. I'm going to call Bill. Yeah, get him on the line. <laughs> get him on the line for us. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Andy. Oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. It's nice to talk to you. It's great having you on and just getting to chat about this movie with you, something that you're passionate about. 
not just the film, but also just sound in general and just the idea of of the world of sound, uh, the the sound mixing and finding the right uh, way to tell the story and how important the story is in the sound. I think that's all such a valuable lesson, just like how story really is the crux of all of these departments. Everybody who's working to tell the story of uh, the film, it all still comes down to story, whether it's the cameraman or the or the re-recording mixer, whoever it is, that's that's really the heart of the job. And I just love that. And and talking about a film that I think is so full of heart. So absolutely. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, uh, we'll talk again in another, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever you, whatever you feel like. <laughs> we better start trying to get on your calendar now. Though. Right, right, well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no worries. Do you, are you online at all? Do you have a place where, where uh, people track you? Like, are you on Twitter or, or Instagram or anything like that? No, I don't do any. I don't have any social media or anything. So people can just I, keep up with you as far as what you're working on over on IMDb so they can see all the different uh, projects you're doing. Just, I, just IMDb. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That's that's. Really refreshing no That's i'm right. not on social media <laughs> no no i'm a little old-fashioned like that i just uh, uh, you know i you know it, it always shocks me i went to i think it was when we were at la la land last year at the oscars and there was some people in the in the bleachers as we were walking down the red carpet and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said they're calling calling out for you and i turned around there was this whole group of people andy andy we love your work and i i was so embarrassed and i said to my wife i it's like I can't imagine why anybody would have any idea what we do below the line, you know. But they do. People <laughs> they do, do follow you. They do. Yeah. They do watch out and, and pay attention to things. So it's kind of it's kind of flattering, you know. It's a little weird, but it's flattering. Um, so, but no, I don't have any uh, anything that people follow like that. Well, as sound nerds. Count us among those who follow you below the line. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'll wave back at you. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again so much for joining us over the next Real Speakeasy, Andy. It was just an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Thank you. Both. And a big thanks to Haley for helping us get this sorted out on our schedules, as well as Derek for getting all the tech side sorted out. And for those of you out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. Head on over to thenextreel.com where you can find all the places on social media where you can follow us. And we invite you to support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help more people find us. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, keep watching the skies. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. 
the originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 